Hello everybody and welcome to the 42nd episode of the Alien vs Predator Galaxy Podcast. It's your usual host, Corporal Hicks, or Aaron Percival as I go by in the real world. I'm playing solo today. Not entirely solo though, because I am chatting to a special guest. He was the visual effects artist for Alien Covenant Wing. Hi, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. How are you going, Aaron? I'm doing well. Doing well. Yourself? Very good. I'm going to make a quick correction to that little intro. Okay. I was doing visual effects concept art, the last part of it, but my main title would be concept artist. So a bit of both then. So there you go. Before we do crack on and, you know, start to talk about film and about um, Alien Covenant specifically, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? You know, who are you and what do you do? Sure. Uh, I'm born in Melbourne, Australia. I grew up taking photographs pretty much most of my life. I remember the world before the internet. <laughs> I remember when Star Wars first came out. I remember when Alien first came out. So that's some of, at least how old I am, give you some idea of, of my age and experiencing some of those, you know, these milestone films for the very first time to be alive at that time when that stuff first happened was pretty cool mm-hmm. and obviously had a major impact on on my desire to become an artist and, and to work in the film industry. Star Wars was obviously that first part of it, but then Alien hit. This is kind of going to probably answer one of your questions later on, but <clears throat> I'll skip straight to it because it, it really does lay the foundation of why I'm doing what I do now. Okay. In uh, When I was in secondary school back in the day, it was a technical school, mostly for those dumb kids that didn't go to high school. They were too dumb for that, but they went to a trade school. That's the sort of school I went to. Right. But they had a really good media studies set up. Actually, at the time, it was probably the best. They had the best equipped TV studio, I think, in the Southern Hemisphere for a secondary school. And my media studies teacher was really encouraging about the sort of stuff I was into, particularly Star Wars, particularly, you know, science fiction film and all that sort of stuff. And I was trying to invent ways to create special effects with my 35mm camera and a slide copier and multiple exposures and all this sort of thing. I was trying to mimic how they were doing Star Wars. Mm. And so he was very, very encouraging of that sort of stuff. Now, one day, the teachers... They'd get us that they'd show us movies in the in this theaterette or a hall room, no seats, just sit on the floor. And this teacher says, "All right, boys, we've got this film. It's some space monster movie. So sit in here, shut the fuck up for the next two hours." <laughs> well, they no doubt bug it off to the pub, mm. which seemed to be a regular occurrence. And this gives you some idea of how impactful Alien was. Now, I was one of I don't know, five kids in the entire school, five boys. It was a boys' school at the time, probably five to maybe ten boys at most, five that I knew of that were into science fiction, that were into that stuff. The rest were just into football. And I thought, well, I was eager for this film to come out. I was eager to watch this for the next two hours, and I was hoping that the rest of the kids were going to shut up and let me watch this. You could hear a pin drop, mostly for the entire duration of that film. Nice. It blew me away that all these other boys that weren't into that stuff were dead silent except for the screams at the right places and that they just couldn't believe it. No one could believe what they saw. Star Wars was epic. Star Wars was brilliant and it was fun. But for me, Alien was the first adult science fiction I'd ever seen. Mm. It was a whole new level. The tension, the drama, the sets, the lighting, the look, the characters, the, the acting, the, the alien itself, the design. It was just... You know that that shot where the Nostromo comes alive and you see the reflection in the helmet visor? Yeah. 
and the sound effects, the sound design blew me away. That's when I realized, wait a second, someone designed that. Someone put that helmet there, saw the reflection and said, we should shoot that. It's when I first realized as a kid that there's design behind all this. Someone thought about that. That wasn't an accident. I heard later that that actually was an accident. <laughs> they did see the reflection in the in the visor of the helmet and then really said, oh, actually, yeah, yeah, just turn the camera around and shoot that. So it was kind of funny. But <clears throat> yeah, that was, that was a very pivotal moment moment for me as a kid and then pretty much from there it was about drawing and doing photography because at that time I was also looking at how they I had Cinefix magazines and Starlog magazines and all that sort of stuff this was, you know obviously way before the internet and they talk about the special effects side of it and I tried to mimic that photographically mm. then at some point I being a lazy ass student you know, dad's like, get a real job, boy. And so I, I had to pick a trade that was the closest thing to something slightly cool, apart from being a damn plumber or a carpenter. I picked electronics and I got into this uh, year 12 electronic course and that eventually led to me getting a job uh, an apprenticeship at the government ammunition factory and I got qualified I did my entire apprenticeship and I got qualified and I came out as a technician and I did that for six and a half years now one of the reasons I stayed in that particular job was because they had an epic dark room on my first day there because I was absolutely despondent that I had to work as an electronic technician and I wasn't working as an artist mm. and I saw they had this great dark room and it was in that dark room that I actually developed a whole lot of uh, processes for creating some of those special effects and I built a pin registration system and I used the, the Kodak film which is a pure black and white film if you're anyone's listening that's familiar with photoshop and the photoshop channels it's a black and white masking type situation and that's what lith kodak lith film was and that's what it was uh, doing and i used it for that so i i came by the time i fast forward straight into learning photoshop i understood it really well because i was doing photo optical compositing which is just like the studios and ilm and all those guys way back so after I got out of that, I went straight into a um, photography degree, and I did my photography degree, did all the standard photography stuff. My third year, I went, okay, I have an opportunity to do a full advertising, corporate photography kind of portfolio, or I could do something really cool and do an entire science fiction portfolio using 3D, you know, not animation, but using 3D, you know, programs. Yeah and compositing and, and building models and photographing people and building these entire environments and just creating these, you know, this story. And that's what I did. And that portfolio I took to the U.S. in 1995 to the SIGGRAPH conference. Um, SIGGRAPH is a computer graphics conference. It's everything from scientific visualization right through to fine art you know, experimental computer art. Right. And obviously in between is the film guys doing visual effects. So I took the portfolio to the U.S., and got work with Digital Domain. Is that Fifth Element? No, it was actually for the games department. They were working on a... They enticed me with this big 3D. We've got this... We're doing this big 3D science fiction world game. It's going to be epic. It's going to be awesome. And I'm like, oh, cool. You know? So I said, well, at least it's Digital Domain. It's a step mm. closer. It's in LA. It's right there. It's, you know... The, the people in the same building are doing film, so close it's not enough. that right, close enough. It took nine and a half months for my work permit to come through an immigration process, and I was almost about to give up when I finally got the call. Yeah, we finally got it sorted out. Come over. I sold everything I had, flew over there. The first day, Monday, these guys in the games department are like, hey, you're the new guy from Australia, right? They go, yeah. It, you, you came here for that science fiction game? I went, yeah. They went, it doesn't exist. Oh. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> what? 
And they had two other games or three other games on. One was for like two to four year olds. One was this thing for called Ted Shred, some skateboard kid. It looked like, you know, 1989 pixel art. It's probably cool today, but back then it was cool. And, and this other, the other one was Barbie fashion designer. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is funny in its Completely own right. Completely nothing what you wanted to do. Oh yeah, totally. No, nothing, nothing whatsoever. But they completely lied to you then. I think they just wanted people in, and I was naive, and you know, I didn't really question it. It's just like, well, it got me in the door. Mm. I, I certainly don't regret it because that was the Monday. Tuesday morning, I'm walking back to my cubicle, and as I walk past this other guy's cubicle, and he's reading the Incal by Mobius, or the. Jodorowsky story illustrated by Mobius. Right. And if anyone's familiar with that book and that story, there's a panel. And his, his back is to me, right? So I'm looking, kind of looking over his shoulder. As I walk past, I see over his shoulder, and he's got the graphic novel open. And there's a panel where there's two pyramids. One is white, one is black. And they're about to touch. The points of those, the tips of those pyramids are about to touch. It's like a convergent point. Mm. And I looked at that and went, holy shit. And I said, that's Mobius. And the guy turns around and he says, yeah, yeah, we're making a movie based on this guy's work. I went, really? He says, yeah, kind of like this. I said, you kidding? This is one of my favorite graphic novels of all time. And we start chatting. He says, oh, you, where are you from? I said, Australia, blah, blah, blah. I said, how long have you been here? Two days. And I said, I'm over there in the games department. And they just told me that why I'm here is complete bullshit. He said, what do you do? And I said, well, I'd love to work as a matte painter. And he said, really? You've got any work? He said, sure, I'll go and get it. I grab his slides, 35 more slides. Mounted on a black card because I didn't have a, you know, I, no iPads in. Mm. He holds them up to the light. He looks at them. He says, "These are fantastic. We need matte painters for this film uh, that's called The Fifth Element." Oh, it's like you know, the heavens <laughs> open and the light came down. You know, I was so happy. And he says, "These are great." By Thursday afternoon, I've been transferred out of games and into the film section, and that was it. Nice. Into the film, into into the Fifth Element, and that man's name is Ron Grass, who's a an excellent map painter and um, artist in his own right. So always, forever, forever, be thankful for Ron Grass for opening that, reading that graphic novel at that moment. It was just pure synchronicity. It was awesome. Yeah. So that was the, that was the beginning, and that was as a map painter. So my, my, the beginning of my film career was all map painting, and that took me right up until I did map painting for. Fifth Element, Red Corner while I was still there. I came back to Australia. I worked on <laughs> my first job in a visual effects company in Australia, in Melbourne. After the Fifth Element, oh, there was one job for Hyundai. This my first employed main job was a dog food commercial. <laughs> so it was like, okay, I hit the top at the very start, and now it's just downhill. You didn't say that way. No, no, thankfully. From um, from there, we did a bunch of local film, Australian films and, and so on. Then I moved up to Sydney, and I worked on Farscape, the TV series, the very first season. Hmm. So half of the map paintings and, and environments you see in the first season uh, are mine. And my goal was to not do the Star Trek thing. I didn't want to duplicate the same damn scene and just turn it from a day into a night. I yeah. wanted them to be different. So we tried hard to make each shot different. Then back to Melbourne for another year, and I worked on a friend's project. And while that was happening, the visual effects supervisor from The Fifth Element was now the VFX supervisor on Lord of the Rings. And he said, well, you know, I'd like to have you on over here in New Zealand. So then I was in New Zealand for two years, working on the first two Lord of the Rings films. Back to Sydney, worked on a ton of TV commercials, started a company with a colleague that went that was terrible. It was the worst thing I'd ever done. Went traveling around China and India for about six months. Came back, went back to freelancing. And it was that point, I think, when I was traveling, I thought, what? why did I get into this? What was the point of all this? And it wasn't so much Star Wars and Alien. That was a big part of it. But prior to those films, this goes back to the very beginning now, 
was a whole bunch of art created for book covers by your fellow countrymen, guys like Jim Burns, Chris Foss, Tim White, John Harris, right? It's that era of English-British sci-fi art. I mm. just loved it. Maybe if some of your listeners have probably got some of these books. There was that series called um, Space, the Terran Trade Authority series books, Spacecraft 2000 to 2100 AD. Then there was Space Rex and stuff like that. Mm. I loved it. Just loved it. And that, that was that thing of like, okay, what am I going to do? Because there was aspects of the film industry that I, I can't stand, and, and visual effects is a big part of that. They're just pedantic and annoying. Thankfully, the art department, pre-production stuff is uh, bags of fun. I love it to death, so that's been really good. But I thought, no, I got into this because I wanted to paint. It wasn't so much that I wanted to work in film, although that was a big part of it. What I realized was that there's these shots in the films, these matte paintings, these big scenes, these environments, these worlds, that I wanted to paint those. And that meant painting people and figures and all that sort of stuff as well, and spaceships. Because as a matte painter, you don't do any of that. Obviously, there are actors. You don't paint people in the scene. You just fill a hole essentially concept art is the next step towards that where you you can put figures in there you can tell a bit of a story you know you can create your own composition you, know, you play mini director of photography mini director to some degree yeah then somewhere along the way the wolverine came along and that was my first real big first concept art job uh, here at fox studios in sydney through that i met the supervising art director that supervising art director in gracie got me onto doing concept art for well, actually straight after that wes ball who was doing the maze runner films the director for the Maze Runner films. I did some artwork for those two, first two films. And the supervising art director in Gracie, he was about to go on to, or had gone on to Gods of Egypt. So that was the next one here in Sydney. And then somewhere along the way, I you know, get this cryptic email. So are you free next, no, are you free November for a Ridley Scott film? And I went, of course I'm free. <laughs> so no idea it's Alien, just know it's Ridley Scott. I think I said to him, what is it? I said, is it Blade Runner or Alien? And he said, let's just say it takes place on other worlds and there's a monster. So Something lines. I went. Yeah. It wouldn't have mattered. I would have said yes anyway. So, yeah. and that um, takes me all the way to Covenant. So, and that was that. That was how you got involved with Covenant. Yeah, just that simple email. Luck. Uh, the fact that our government had lobbied like crazy to get you know to Ridley and and the producers to get Covenant into this country. People say, oh, it's fantastic. You know, you know, your work's great. You know, blah blah blah. But it's pure luck. I mean, there was so it must have been so many meetings and so many machinations behind the you know behind the scenes that Ridley could have gone anywhere. There's any number of things that could have prevented that from happening in this country. You know, he could, could have gone into South Australia, uh, South Africa or, or Canada. It's just someone's decision. So, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll do it in Australia. And that was that's luck. Had it been anywhere else, I would not have been working on it. It's as simple as that. Let's, let's talk a little bit about your, yeah, no, your, your role, Sam. You kind of fluffed up my next question with, with your correction. <laughs> um, partly, you're partly correct. I just wanted the the beginning part of the the beginning stages were concept art within the art department, and it was the later section which was for visual effects. Similar similar role, which I'll explain to later. But, um, well, I was, I was just you know hoping you could dumb the um, dumb the role down for us and tell it tell us how it differs to conceptual art and why that resulted on you staying on the film pretty much after all the other artists or the other art department had packed up and gone. Well, perhaps I should give you a rundown of concept art first. Okay. Then um, for those who don't know, at least my particular role, and this was similar to my role on the Wolverine actually, Covenant seemed to be, there was a whole bunch of it seemed to be pre-designed. Certainly a lot of sets, a lot of the general architecture um, and the layout of certain places was pre, pre-thought out. I sus- and I don't think that there was necessarily artwork created. Although Steve Berg, 
um, you guys might be familiar with. He um, did the Prometheus ship and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so he was the main ship guy. He did the interiors and exteriors of the ships. So he, I think he'd been working on it long before we had. Mm-hmm. So on that regard, all that was already in motion. I don't know where and for how, how soon someone else was thinking of actual designs of architecture and so on. I suspect it was Ridley, and I suspect he was doing a lot of research. There may not have been much artwork done, but he certainly had a lot of it pre-thought out. I think he's got a lot of, he's probably thinking about the next two alien films already and he's got a bag of reference someplace, you know, for that. He really does think it right through. So by the time we hit, hit the production early November, some of the sets from the set designers had already been created as 3D models, CAD models. Now, set designers are basically guys that are, they're not just building what the set looks like in terms of how you might see it on the screen. They may actually only design a section or a portion of that. Think about the practicality of filming in it as well. Exactly. So you've got things like, okay, is it elevated above the ground? Is it connected to, you know, water? Is there some sort of water effect that has to go through there or fire or smoke or hydraulics? Is it moving? Is it on a gimbal? Does it move up and down? There's all those sorts of things they have to take into consideration. You know, how strong should the floor be? And will there be 10 crew members and, you know, 50 actors and so on standing on it? So it's got to be strong. So what do we build it out of and all that sort of thing? So there's that aspect that they include in that CAD model. We basically get that model strip out all that rubbish and we concentrate on the bit that you're going to see in the film and then we might expand on that model by building our own stuff and and, and doing whatever we need to or just doing it in in photoshop but a lot of 3d work we work with Maya a lot i certainly work with Maya a lot and we'll take that model and this is where i get to play cinematographer so i'll get that set model set up my camera set up the lighting render out a scene take it into photoshop and turn what was a CAD, you know, model into photographic reality. How will that look on screen at the end? And that includes, and for me, a big part of it is the lighting, the mood, the feeling, the overall color palette, the overall, you know, tone of that image. Weather, is it raining? Is it foggy? Is there, you know, it's all that stuff. Are there any other light sources? Is it nighttime? So what, what artificial uh, light sources are illuminating the scene? It's to turn that into a believable scene. So when someone looks at it, they go, oh, okay, so that's what we're building. That's what it's going to look like on screen, hopefully. That's pretty much the concept artist role. We, we were never brought into the blue sky phase where we had to just invent stuff. It was all, a lot of the ideas were pretty much established before we got there. Hmm. Like I said, I don't know whether there was a lot of artwork done necessarily. Steve Messing was another concept artist in the US. So he had done some, some of the earlier artwork. So we did have a basis to jump from. So I don't know how much of it he'd done. Um, but we did have that jumping off point. So there was nothing that we had to kind of invent. You know, we, we weren't never given that luxury of really saying, Hey, um, we've got to invent blah, blah, blah. Go for it. But we, we didn't have that. A lot of us, we were just handed stuff that was pre-done for the most part. And we could tweak and change things and modify as we needed that we, if we thought it needed to, which I, I tend to do a fair bit and massage it into a, you know, a nice looking shot. Now the difference between that concept art. And the visual effects concept art is that by the time I got to doing the visual effects work, I was working with actual shots, the actual photography. So they'd shot all that stuff, work the, the footage a little bit, and I get given one of those frames. And in that frame, you'll see the actors walking along, holding, you know, whatever, carrying whatever equipment they might be. And it's all lit. There's cranes and there's trucks and there's catering and there's 20 other crews standing around, that sort of thing, and, you know, city in the background. 
I'm going to paint all that crap out, match up that camera to a 3D camera because I've got, you know, in that scene, whatever it might be, they're in a particular place, in a particular location in the world that we've already established. And there might be, a, say, a partial set piece. And I know where that partial set piece is and what it belongs to. So I have to match that up to the 3D model and match the camera, match the camera lens, match the camera height off the ground, that sort of thing. Render all that out and then paint that up with that actual footage so now it's not just what will that look like it's this is really close to what that's going to look like on screen because now we're dealing with real footage that's the only difference between the early concept art and the later concept art the vfx concept it was working with actual footage the funny thing is at that point i think it was this is where ridley starts to play around with the compositions he loves to play with the composition he loves to push and pull things around and all the early artwork we'd done in the art department, he'd approved. Maybe, you know, approved work, approved, approved, or released as they called it. And then we get the visual effects and he starts pulling things around. Make that bigger. Pull that forward. Remove that altogether for this angle. Whereas before you might have seen something in the foreground, he said, no, just remove it. And make that over there bigger. Push that aside. So every shot is massaged independently, even though there's an established location with an established distances and scales and relative scales of objects he will play and push around those elements within that shot to get a, an optimum composition and that's where i learned that he's massaging constantly and he'll massage that right to the very end so that was the main difference between the main art department at least what i was doing although we did a bunch of other different stuff too one of the interesting aspects was as you all know they went to new zealand to shoot before they made the final decision to shoot in New Zealand, I mean, apart from all the financial and, and practical considerations, they would send scout sh scouting photographs back to us, say, in a Tuesday afternoon. And the three of us, myself, Evan Shabard, Gerhard Mossi, you guys have got to interview those two when the, those two guys when the film comes out, by the way. And Dane Hallett, and Matt, Matt Hatton and Dane Hallett. Mm. Trust me, you will want to interview those guys. I've, I've already <laughs> spoke to Dane, I've already got a tentative oh, one coming up with him, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Totally. So myself, Evan Gearhard, say Tuesday afternoon, we'd be given a bunch of photographs that they shot on location uh, from our location scenes, and we'd have to paint over those certain things. We'd have to paint into those photographs as quickly as possible. Very rough, very quick concept art. And then they'd email them back that night, and that would give Ridley and the crew and the producers a chance to look at those shots with what they wanted in those scenes really quickly and say, is, does this work? Mm. And they made a ton of decisions really quickly because we could just pump, we were like, I don't know, six each, you know, within a couple of hours and just pump these pictures out, paint this stuff in. He'd get them, they'd see them the next morning, make a decision and go, okay, let's quickly get, this works, let's go to another location and we'll do the same thing. And so a ton of work that we did really had nothing to do with concept art so much, but it was, does this location work? Will this look okay? And that was really making this, you know, creative decisions at that moment. Is that typical of location scouting? It's the first time I've, it's the first time I've ever done that. Put it that way. It might, it might happen other places. I don't, we didn't do any of that sort of thing on Wolverine. Yeah, it's just, it was interesting. Let's just say that it was banging out really quickly, very fast. One of them, efficient, very efficient too. I can make decisions. We can go, okay, well, it's logistically easy enough to get the, get the crew up here. We know what it's, what's required, how many crew we're going to need, what's required for this, what's required for that, how much of that will be visual effects. And they just all sit around, they work it out right there on the spot in that location, and they make the decisions. Instead of thinking about it, coming back from New Zealand, you know, pondering it, oh, what should we do? They just do it. He just really knows. I think he looks, I think he can see the framing. 
He sees the compositions. He looks at something and says, yep, that'll work. Let's do it here. And that kind of concept art really helped him make those decisions really, really fast. Ridley's actually a notoriously hands-on director. You know, he comes from an art background. He seems to get quite heavily involved with the art department when he's, when he's working. I mean, how closely did you guys work with him on, on Covenant? He physically walked through the art department once. Huh? This was the complete opposite. <laughs> we were so disappointed. <laughs> the first, we were in two buildings. When we first started in November, we were in this sort of a temporary area and we'd set up and I think we'd been on the job for three weeks. Maybe, oh, might have been since November, might have been sometime in December or early January. So we'd done a bit of work already. Mm. And out this sort of back door where we're just working away and this door opens and the door that's open to the toilets or into the hallway to the toilets. And we just thought it was somebody coming out from the toilets. And it's this entourage comes through and it turns out to be Ridley. And he's sort of looking around, oh my God, it's Ridley. You know? And he says, good work, chaps. <laughs> <laughs> and that- and then, like Batman, he's gone. That you know, was it. That was it. Wow. And that was that was the only time he actually spoke words <laughs> in the same room as us, as the concept artists. So was, was he mostly working through Chris then, Chris Eagers and everything was through Chris. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I did eventually meet him, but it was much, much later. But no, we never saw him in the art department at all. And tell us about when you when you finally met him. Yeah, I, there was one um. Well, I mean, I almost met him a couple of times walking around the lot. You know, in the morning or afternoon, I'd go and buy a coffee and I'm walking between one of the stages, you know, and then I see him. There he is, alone. <laughs> I make this beeline head right for him. And just at the last minute, I'm like, you know, 10 meters away and these two bozos come out of the stage and they go, oh, Ridley, Ridley, oh, we need... Da, da, da. Ah, damn. You know, so that happened twice. So I never did actually get to meet him on those occasions. But I did... There was a shot that I designed, and I'll say designed. I didn't really design the look of the set, partially designed it based on earlier information. And I'd set it up, objects and elements within the space, framed up the camera, created the artwork. Chris came along and he saw it and he said, oh, so you've seen Ridley's storyboards. And I said, uh, no, I haven't actually. I said, sorry, I'm, geez, I should have thought about maybe he's got some storyboards that have screwed up the composition or something. He said, no, 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 I asked because it's exactly like his drawings. It's exactly the same as his storyboard. I went, oh, really? And I have this character in this scene. This is the thing with all these sets. Everything's real-world scale. So we just started. We just had a series of, you know, uh, 3D figures that were just real-world. We'd match to the physical sizes of the sets and so on. So everything looked real. The height of a human wasn't just made up guesstimation of, Let's paint a figure way back there. It, the figure was real size relative to everything else, and so that figure looked correct with that lens and that camera. So I've got this figure walking from right to left diagonally into this particular scene, and Chris says, oh, no, 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 really likes everything's left to right. Everything's left to right. He says, put the, put the character over there. Put him over there. I go, okay, all right. Now, fast forward, I get to see this set being built and it's it's sim- simple elegant beautiful and they're going to shoot that particular scene on a saturday morning so i go screw it i'm going in i said to chris i said look and it's getting like down to the wire we're getting like almost in the last couple of weeks and i've still not yet met ridley i'm going chris i want to meet ridley i want to meet ridley you know hey chris um any chance of meeting ridley <laughs> oh yeah 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 sure yeah 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 we'll have to yeah you'll have to do that won't we yeah yeah and this went on for weeks, and it never, never happened. And I said to Chris, look, I'm coming in Saturday. I'm going to come in and watch that shot. He says, oh, yeah, for sure. He says, but don't expect to meet him then because, you know, when he's working, when he's on, he's on. That's it, you know. I said, that's cool. I just want to watch this this set because I'm 
kind of close to that one. He said, that's cool, no worries. So I go in, and they're all seeing it up. And they've got the concept art. He's got the concept art in front of him. And this gets shown around to the crew, and they're setting up the camera exactly in the position I've set it up. It's all exactly the same. And Ridley's looking at this, and he says, why don't we have, uh, I won't say who the character is, but he says, why don't we have him walk from here, <laughs> right, to left, <laughs> diagonally. <laughs> And Chris is standing right there, and I'm standing with my arms crossed, you know, folded up, you know, smug, you know. And Chris <laughs> looks over at me and <laughs> laughs, and I just nodded to him, see? And I kind of, you know, point my head to Ridley, I'm like, you know, Ridley and I, you know, <laughs> same wavelength. So that was kind of funny. Anyway, a few minutes later, Chris says, oh, Wayne, come over here. And uh, he was with Ridley, and he introduced me to Ridley at that, at that point. And so we chatted for about 10 minutes, about whatever. So that was fun. Finally did get to meet the man, but it had nothing to do with the film, really. Like, he didn't come in and brief us. There was none of that stuff. It was just, uh, hey, you know, thanks for being here. Thanks for doing the film. It's great. It's, you know, great honor. It's great to see you in action, see how it all works, and to be a part of it, you know. So I did finally meet him, but, you know, he, no, no hands on with the art department whatsoever. Everything was through Chris. So. Yeah. A little surprising. Right. Yes, it was. I mean, we'd all heard stories that he'd roll in with a case of wine on a Friday and, you know, sit down and all the artists would be drinking wine and he'd be smoking cigars and, you know, talk art. For, you know, nope, none of it. So we were slightly disappointed about that. I'm blaming. I'm blaming it all. Let's talk a little logistical here as well. How how was the art department for Common itself? Who was doing what? Well, Chris, uh, the production designer, is basically the next step to Ridley. His job is to, the technical description is the designer of the look and feel of the film. But there's a lot of hands-on about how the sets look, the design of the sets. Now, sort of crosses over a little Oh, bit. it's it's everything. Pretty much Chris is the, he's the designer of the look of every element and every aspect of every set and every location. And this extended into visual effects as well. So it's the greater world. It's beyond just the set. He's that designer of the entire thing. Now, obviously, in a Ridley Scott film, that's Ridley's the first guy who's designing all that stuff, not so much Chris. Chris is the guy that turns Ridley's vision into that practical reality and translates what Ridley's thinking and saying, translates Ridley's vision into that real-world set and the real-world designs. Um, Ian Gracie, who is the supervising art director, he's pretty much the guy that oversees all of the departments, and he's the guy that can say, who'll get whatever the designs are from Chris and say, we can't do that because that will cost too much money. Go back to the drawing board, you know, work it out. Let's work through that, figure out another way. So it becomes a very much a, a dollars and cents situation with the supervising art directors, and that then leads down to the various art departments, or the various departments within the art department. So you've got set design, which I was pretty much a part of. So you've got the set designers building, uh, designing sets in CAD. Uh, they spit out blueprints, all that kind of stuff. We would take those same CAD models and then turn them, as I said before, into photographic reality. Pretty, the pretty pictures, the, the nice glossy stuff that people go, ooh, ooh that's pretty. It's really a fun job. And we, we make stuff up and, you know, add stuff into the scenes that, you know, really shouldn't be there. And there's one scene I'm, I'm really eager to see. I'm hoping that it's in the film. I did something and put something pretty epic in there that if I see it, I'll be very, very happy. Not that I invented the thing in there. I've just put something that's kind of was done, but into this space. And if it's in there, people are going to go, wow. So then you've got set designs, you've got set decorators. <clears throat> so once the sets are built, you've got the guys that come in and decorate the sets and make it look, you know, grungy. You put all the um, display panels in. All that sort of stuff, uh, the paint department paints all this, you know, all this stuff's made of wood or fiberglass or, or polystyrene. They paint it up to look like the real thing. Uh, what else? You've got this, obviously construction guys. You've got, what have I missed out? Well, then there's the creature department. I can't really talk much about plasterers, woodworkers. You know, I used to think, you know, you see carpenters, plasterers in the credits and you go, what? 
why are they before all the visual effects guys? It's because they put in so much freaking work. It's amazing what plasterers do, carpenters do, and the amount of wood and stuff that's just that's built is just phenomenal, truly phenomenal. So they deserve their place in the credit list, that's for sure. Incredible work. Let's see what else? Set decorators, I think they mentioned. That's where Dane and, and Matt Hatton were downstairs. I won't say too much about that because that kind of... I did some stuff that was sort of for set. One of your guys, I think it was um, Enoch on the forum, asked about backdrops. Mm. And one of the things I did, I can sort of talk about it. I did actually, he was right. I painted a backdrop that was printed onto vinyl. Rather than build it out of timber and, and timber paneling and then paint it up and make it look like what it was supposed to look like, they basically had these very simple timber flats. And we painted this entire wall or this entire part of a wall um, digitally. And that was printed onto strips of vinyl. And that vinyl was, you know, wallpapered onto that, that timber panel and it's seen from a distance you can't tell it's fully detailed it's got everything it's, that needs needs to be on there and it looks realistic and it's really cheap and it's really fast and it can be art directed very very quickly had that been painted by hand it would just just impossible so I, i'd worked on a mural project for the um, government historic houses trust here in sydney and I'd mentioned that to Chris at some point, and he come come into me one day and he said, "Hey, um, got this job, but we need to do this thing, and I think we can do it with a vinyl print." I went, "Yeah, absolutely, let's do that." So that was something that was non-concept art that was actually physically directly for both set building and set decoration. So that was fun. That was that was different. That was fun. Mm. So there's a kind of a loose approximation of what uh, how the art department works. A lot, of, a lot of give and take between, say, the set designers, those guys who, who are designing all this stuff in CAD. And us concept guys, we would sometimes take those models and modify them, change them around, add stuff, and then they, the art directors would look at that and say, oh, we really like that. Then it might be, really might go, oh, yeah, I do like that too. And then the set designers would have to go back and add the stuff we've added back into their architectural drawings and their, their CAD models because everything that was changed that was put into a set had to then be put into a blueprint because someone had to actually build it. So there was a bit of backwards and forwards between the set designers and us. So what sort of preparation did you do before starting work on, on Covenant? Was there any sort of specific design elements that you went and researched, or was it a case of sitting down and watching Alien, you know, another 30 times? Oh, uh, I think I probably watched Alien once. I think that was about it. But apart from just picking up my computer, taking it into the into Fox, setting up, you don't... I mean, it, it's interesting because a lot of the stuff we did, certainly the stuff I did and the first paintings I did, when you see the film... It's like when I worked on the Wolverine. There's sequences and parts of the design. Like I had to do it an airport, a Yukon airport, right? So here's the scene where um, Yukio picks up Logan in, in that Canadian, the Yukon outback someplace, and there's that Learjet waiting for them. Now, that's people go, oh, wow, you're going to work on a superhero film. And I was painting an airport in the Yukon. <laughs> now, I don't care about that stuff. I love that shit because it's just, for me, it's not about that. It's about the composition of the frame. It's about the mood. It's about the lighting. It's about the look of it. Technicalities of it. Well, it's the, no, it's a, actually, it's a lot of creative stuff. It's just not fancy, you know, superhero. I'm not painting the superheroes jumping through the air and, you know, lightning coming out of Thor's hammer and shit like that. You know, I'm not, I don't do any of that. I'm not into that. I'm not designing the spaceships. A lot of its environment and its and its lighting and its mood and I dig that big time. So there was a lot of stuff on Covenant that was like that for me, where you'll go, well, that doesn't look like Alien. It doesn't look like anything to do with Alien, <laughs> but well, it is, and but it's different, you know. But I totally got into it because of those other aspects of it. So it doesn't have to look like Alien. 
for me to be interested in it. Sort of kind of leads me into the next question a little bit. Because, you know, there's, there's no denying that Prometheus was a gorgeous film, visually. Yeah. Um, but it, there was very obvious disconnect visual disconnect between Alien and Prometheus, both you know, the human stuff and the extraterrestrial stuff. What we've seen and heard of Covenant so far is that that doesn't seem to be the case this time around. You know, we've, we've seen a bit of Mobius in one of the spacesuit hel- helmets in some of the production um, cells. You know, we've got darker, more practical-looking sets, less glass panels, more push buttons. You know, the actors have been talking about how grungy the sets were as well. Mm. Was there a deliberate attempt to sort of return the art direction to something that was more like the original Alien? Yeah, there was, actually. From what I heard, Ridley wasn't happy with where Prometheus went. He thought the ship was way too advanced. He, he, it's, uh, now, I don't, that was through Chris, so I don't know, know exactly what Ridley said in that regard, but the word was that Ridley f- realized, yeah, I, I, we pushed that too far in terms of the design of Prometheus. It was too advanced. Now, I've got a theory about that. Around the same time as that that ship is being built, the Nostromo is also being built. Okay. Now, you've got to think about the two types of ships. And who was in the, the Prometheus? That wasn't just any old, just, that wasn't just a brand new ship. That, Peter Whalen was in that ship. And I believe that was experimental. Highly experimental. This is my little theory, you know, what I went with. And it was top secret and it was the best of the best. And there was nothing else like that. But while that's being built, tugs like Nostromo are being pushed off the production line like crazy, right? So this is your standard old tug. Tugboats. By the time you finally get to Alien, it's worn out, it's used, it's beat up, it's been through the ringer. Now, don't forget, Ash was put onto that ship prior to that mission, and he knows, they know they're gonna, that ship's going to stop and pick up that signal, and it's going to investigate. Otherwise, Ash wouldn't have been on the ship. So I think it's almost like by the time you get to Alien, the Nostromo is actually past its use-by date. And Wayland's probably thinking, or Wayland Yutani by that stage, um... We're not going to waste money on a new ship. Let's just wheel out this old tugboat. And if that blows up, if we lose that for some reason, who cares? No big deal. So I think it can work as long as you understand that the Prometheus was carrying, you know, Peter Whalen himself. And I think if you sort of went, oh, well, it's experimental, it's, you know, kind of you can get away with it. That's how a lot of people tend to try and justify that as well. Yeah. I, I, I buy into it personally. Yeah, it's a stretch, but I think you can do it. But the the, the covenant and and the sets for the interesting thing is they're not that grungy. They're used. It's not. We're not talking the Nostromo here. It's nothing like that. Um, it's a middle ground. It's a middle ground. Yeah, it's used, but it's not. It's not a beat up old piece of shit. You know, it's it's still there's a lot more of that simple functionality. And I think that was a deliberate choice by really to to bring it back to something of the aesthetic of of Alien. There's the definite Mobius influence. There's a definite, there's an influence from, here's a funny story. I think I could say this without too much drama. I mentioned to someone on Twitter, probably one of your guys, I think. I think they've all got different handles. The guys, some of the guys that follow Twitter have got totally different handles than their handle on, you know, the, the AVP forum. And I don't know who they are. And then I read back and go, yeah, I was just asking. And he said, that I don't get right. So that's you. Okay. Right. So you are you. Gotcha. You know, it takes me a while too. Quite funny. And we're talking about references and so on. And, you know, like I think I mentioned Bocklin. We referenced Arnold Bocklin a lot. Mm, the Isle of the Dead, is it? Right. So, you know, there's a look and a feel to, to Bocklin's paintings. And that's what really is, you know, Amy. It's not so much the details of it necessarily. Although he's big on trees. So he loved the tree. He loves Bocklin's trees. And he knows exactly what species they are and all that kind of stuff. So he's like, no, no, I want those trees. But there's a general overall look and feel to his paintings that we were, you know, riffing off. If you like. Mm. 
There's a story, there's a book, science fiction book called, a novel called The Forever War by Joe Helderman. Yeah, Ridley's doing a film on that later at some point, isn't he? No, he's not. <clears throat> the interesting thing is, he, the rights to that, or his, his um, rights to that lapsed. Ah, okay. Not that long, not that long ago, but yes, he did. He did have the rights, he was gonna, or the option to make that into a movie, and they, they lapsed. Great book. Yes, fantastic. So, I'm in Chris's office one day, and there's this graphic novel sitting on his desk, and it's, uh, because I've got the original three, three volume graphic novel that was uh, drawn by an Italian guy, um, I think, back in the, um, I think it was back in the 80s, late 80s or maybe early 90s, can't remember. Anyway, Chris has got this graphic novel, and I sort of recognize the cover, and it's all in French. So they've reprinted this thing. And I pick it and I go, that looks cool. It's familiar. And I open it up and sure enough, it's the Forever War graphic novel. And then Chris says, oh, do you know what that is? I said, yeah, it's called the Forever War. I said, Ridley had the option to this. He says, oh, I don't know. It's all in French. I have no idea what the story is. I said, yeah, it's this American novelist, Joe Hellman, blah, blah, blah. And I'm flicking through it. And the book <laughs> is covered in sticky notes and post-it notes. And he's got, you know, this is all Ridley's notes. Okay. Mm. Ridley saw this and Chris said, uh, he said to Chris, can I borrow this? And he said, yeah, sure. And he didn't see it for a month. And the book finally comes back and it's just got notes sticking out of it everywhere and arrows and, you know, so he's referencing all sorts of stuff. Now, in terms of that book, it was, he was referencing certain compositions, framing of certain scenes. So it's not, you don't know why he's referencing something until he says, I want this in there. And you go, oh, okay, so it's not about the object. It's about the lighting hitting the object, or it's about the composition of the frame, or it's about the look and feel. So it's really interesting how, I mean, he draws on everything. I mean, literally, you, there's, it's open slather. It's open game. He steals from everything and everybody, really. Mm-hmm. Truly does. He just steal anything. This is amazing. He just does not, there's no barrier to what, and he will marry this with that with that. You know, that just mm. these things that you just don't think would go together. And he'll say, no, 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 that's what I want. Because he's got this vision already figured out. So we didn't have to do a lot of invention. It was a lot of him already just just getting us to put those elements together, you know, how they're going to look. You probably can't really say a lot about this next one, but what about the extraterrestrial elements in Covenant? You know, there, there was a distinct lack of H.R. Giger and Prometheus as engineers. You know, and that, that was a conscious decision from Ridley Scott and, and Arthur Max to not look so Giger. Will there be more of a biomechanical approach this time around? No, except for the obvious parts. Without actually going into it, Chris and I had these discussions about, you know, because he's kind of, he's painted himself into a corner, really, that is. He's painted himself into a corner by introducing the engineers flying, this is not giving anything away because it's in Prometheus, flying the juggernauts around and all that tech. So you've got this gigaresque style of equipment and then there's this, then there's the whole other side of the engineer society and culture. Okay. So you go, okay, so hang on, who, who invented that stuff then? You know, if, the beauty of Alien was that the ship, Alien itself, the interiors, the surfaces, the, it, all of it was this unique, you know, Giga-esque vision of that entire utterly alien species, background, world, whatever. So how does that play in with the engineer world? You know, that, I think that's where he painted himself into a corner. And I'm not exactly sure that that was the right thing to do. Is that something that sort of gets addressed narratively or anything, or is just sort of glossed over? Maybe, maybe to some degree. I, my theory is that, I mean, this is just looking at Prometheus, not Covenant, is that they stumbled upon that tech, you know, the black goo and all that sort of stuff. I just think they stumbled upon it. I think the original, the alien, the species, the culture, the equipment, the tech, all that stuff was somehow stolen. They found it and they've stolen it and they've used it and they don't necessarily know how it works. And it's bit them on the ass. That, that's another one of the uh, the fan theories as well, that they're completely separate. 
Yeah, because otherwise, what do you do? You, you give away the entire origin of of that creature. And the beauty of that, it was so mysterious. You don't really want to know where it comes from. You shine a light on that and all the mystery is gone. That's my theory of that. So we, we would talk about that sort of stuff and then how does that, you know, relate to the design? And my theory was just, look, I think they've just stolen it or they found it. They stumbled upon it and they're using it the best they know. They've reverse, they've reverse engineered this tech that they found, you know, so. Did that kind of mentality go into your, into the design as well then? Not for the stuff I was doing. No, there was nothing. Actually, that's not true. There were smaller parts of it. There were aspects. Some of the environment work, but subtle, very subtle. You not really get to tinker with the, um, the extraterrestrial stuff. The engineer stuff, yeah. I, most of the work I did was engineer culture. I mean, it, the, the film really doesn't go anywhere else. You know, they land on the planet, and they take off from the planet, and they go back to the Covenant. So there's only there's only really two two locations you're dealing with, and that's the. Milford Sound stuff and all the sat work stuff that we've sort of seen. Well, when I say two locations, you've got that world. So they go to that world, you know, so you've got the ship and then you've got that world. It's, they're, not, they're not hopping to, you know, five other different planets is what I'm saying. It's just, it's the one planet. Okay, so on the reverse of that then, Prometheus introduced, you know, quite a few unique design elements, um, specifically to the engineers' quarters, you know, you, you have the temple, you've got those big head busts. You know, we've already seen some of that in, in the leaked set photos. Yep. How much did the art design on Prometheus influence Covenant? Because, I mean, it, it's like a meeting of two worlds into it. This, this film, it's Alien and it's Prometheus. Yes. Yeah, It's well, it's that third party. It's that that's the culture of this other people, of this third party. We've got some idea of the design aesthetic of the Alien. So, and, that's, and that's why I think, really, it should just be a stolen tech or a found tech that the Black Goo, for instance, is, it has some kind of DNA to it that creates that look but who are the engineers what does their culture look like what's their design aesthetic and so yes there is more of that it's an extension of that in covenant you'll see a lot more of that you shared a pretty cool picture on twitter of a miniature 3d printed alien that the art department was using for scale reference yep. i'm assuming that's going to be towards set design not the question but um you can correct me if i'm wrong there now i've got two questions that spin off of that picture first is that silhouette um is that kind of what we can expect from Covenant's Aliens? To be brutally honest, I have no idea. I think Evan, Evan Shippard, the concept artist in, in uh, our office, I think he, I don't know whether he found that online or whether the guys on the, in the art department had a model, a basic model, and I don't know where they got that from. But he took it into ZBrush and he did some sort of simplification of that and then he did a, did a 3D print of it. So he's got, he's got his own 3D printer and he did a couple of 3D prints of that alien at a couple of different scales. So, I don't think it, I'm pretty sure it doesn't represent the alien in the film necessarily, although it might. I think it's just something he found and where they were just using it as a stand-in for, you know, alien, you know, just to give an idea of scale within those little, those little white cardboard sets that they would build. So it was set design. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A second then, did you manage to sneak any other souvenirs off the set? I did. I did. I've given, I've given one away as a gift already. Right. I've got, I've got two that are sort of similar for, of the same type of thing and then two completely separate things. One is an actual, actually the other two are actual props. They might have been actual props. They might have made multiples of those. Actually, they make multiples of most things in case they lose them or break them. So whether it's actually in the film, I don't know. But I do have one that I'm pretty sure was or might have been in the film that Dane gave to me. Because Dane's a, he's a shifty bastard. He's in it. He's, he, he worked within the set, set deck department, right? Set decoration department. So he was always there on the sets taking care of all that stuff. So I think he pilfered probably all sorts of shit. Anyway. <laughs> So I get the odd thing from him. Um, so yeah, I've got a, a one that's a definite prop. Uh, whether it's in the film, I'm not sure. Two others that are similar. 
that might have just been duplicates of a prop. Not sure. Those I'm going to keep. But these other two things, um, when the film comes out, I'll, I might just send them to you guys and you can auction them off or something and you know, put the money to a charity or something. Yeah, yeah. Because okay, cool. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. I mean, I'm not, I'm not the kind of guys, you know, going to stick it on eBay going, you know, oh, I've got this prop, you know, from the blah, blah, blah. I'll probably just lose it. Have you got to be a cagey about what they are, really? Things you can't tell us. Uh, definitely cannot tell you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, one is, you know, like the, the little alien scale model for the, for the yeah. sets. One is like, it's a scale model of something of one of the sets. So it's okay. not really a prop. It's, it's not anything like that, but I, I still won't say what it is. You're going to show them off after the film comes out. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of course. We've got quite a few questions here from members of, you know, the ABP Galaxy community. Yeah. There's a good junk here. So I do apologize in advance, but it was hard to sort of like try and filter out which ones to ask you. That's okay. You can ask them all, I'll just go no comment. <laughs> where's, the, where's the fun in that? I, I tried to pick ones that you could probably talk about. Well, hope, hopefully these are something you, you can actually say things about. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll do our best. So, uh, 426 Buddy is curious about the vision of Covenant. You know, he expressed some concerns of the way Prometheus changed over the course of its development. He asks if there was a consistent vision for Covenant throughout production. Did Ridley's vision for the film change as it was being made like with Prometheus? In the time I was there, I think there were probably three to four different script revisions. So from November? Yeah, from November all the way through to July, July, August, somewhere around there. Um, the last one I read, the first one I read was obviously when I first got there because it's the first thing you do that first day mm. is they throw the script you have a read get an idea of what you're working on and then i skipped the next two and then somewhere along the way i finally eventually read whatever the latest version was then so now that's normal there's going to be changes and shifts and you know the balancing of scenes put this here do you put that there do you add a prologue of some description do you change the the emphasis in terms of the overall vision i don't know i never worked on prometheus so i'm not sure how much I'm going to say there was a fairly consistent vision. I think Ridley had it kind of pretty well nailed down. There wasn't, there was no major, like we'd get be given a brief. Here's the shot. Here's the set. Paint that up. Make that look pretty. I'd had, I always had a pretty good strike rate. Actually, I do artwork and I maybe have to do one to two revisions at most. And there was quite a few that I actually got released stamp on it first go. So that suggested to me that Ridley, even though he'd never seen the artwork until it was created, he knew the minute he saw it, does that fit? He knows inside in his head where it's whether it's going to fit or not. The minute he sees the artwork, oh yeah, that works. Not what I expected, but it works. And it's within the parameters that I need for that shot. And then after a while, you get into the, the look and the vibe of the film, and so everything starts to kind of feel. You know where to go. You know where to put it. Where to put stuff into the into the shot what type of lighting, what kind of mood you're looking for, you start to narrow that down as you go. So by the end of the film, you cut, everyone's pretty much on the same page. Everyone's thinking and feeling the same thing about it. So I don't, I don't re- recall any real major shifts in, in overall style or look or vision. It, it seemed pretty, pretty straightforward. I'll know once the film comes out, and there might be some kind of, you know, earlier script or something or some other thing, but it seems to be. Now, whether he gets into the visual effects phase and starts really changing stuff, I, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know whether there's any pickup shots that have come along afterwards that were shot in London, perhaps that's changed key dialogue, it's changed the emphasis of uh, certain story points, maybe, not sure. I have a feeling this one's going to be no, but I've wrote it down, so I'll ask it anyway. Bonesaw and Kane's son both asked a sort of variation of this question. They asked what kind of materials 
that were given to the artist for visual reference. So, for example, the goblin shark sort of informed the design of the deacon in Prometheus. Is there anything like that in Covenant? Uh, nothing in my department. There was nothing like uh, that's a creature department. They may have been given all sorts of reference that I'm unaware of. Um, like I said, we were pretty much part of the set set designers. That was our main thing: the environments and the sets. So, like I said, we I mentioned the Bachman paintings. So that was key reference for some of the areas or, or look and feel. The not that it was direct reference. Like we weren't actually given the Forever War graphic novel as reference, but it was just happened to be on Chris's desk. So it's something Ridley's looked at. Lots and lots of Ridley storyboards. I mean, he draws all the time. He's constantly drawing. So we get lots of his storyboards and that was pretty straightforward reference. Sometimes you'd get a video or there'd be some kind of YouTube thing or something. This is how this looks. Can you make, you know, marry that with this? Like I said, there was reference would come from all over the place. He just, he steals from every, he's very, he's so well read. He's so well up with culture, historical culture, current culture, art movements, you, you name it. I mean, Yes, tree species. He knows trees like the back of his hand. I've seen some big fuck off trees in the um, the leaked set photos as well. Yes, well, that's kind of part of that whole you know New Zealand thing. So, um, one of the places they wanted to shoot was in um, the state of Victoria, just south of here, or near where I grew up. And there's some really big forest trees there. They were looking for that kind of you know sequoia redwood type scale and they didn't have that that doesn't actually exist in new zealand and it kind of exists in victoria but the look and feel of the forest is is not what they were after so that's somewhat you know those sets those things that you saw in the leaked photos that's kind of part way to getting that look and the basis of that into shots that you know take place in that that environment enoch asks if there is anything story or concept wise that surprised you in a positive way something that made you go that's pretty fucking awesome yes there's I can't tell you what it is though. Can't give any kind of clues. <laughs> I mean, it's multiple things, I suppose. There's some really cool visuals. I think there's some awesome visuals. I like the general visit for me, for me personally. And this is because I've got the Forever War graphic novel. And I'm not saying that's a key component. It's really it's probably just a, a very small part of it. But I can see Ridley's. He's looking back to to Mobius. He's looking back to some of those early. It's like. That Mobius short story called, um, which is written by Dan O'Bannon, by the way, called the, one the, with the Octarians. And- yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So there's your sort of see, the long now this tomorrow, is, your, is it? The long tomorrow. There's your Prometheus. There's the what do they call that? The trilobite. The trilobite. Right. There you go. Yeah. There's that graphic novel. There's that picture of the guy naked. They had it hung up in the uh, art department for uh, Prometheus. Right. So he's always looking at this stuff. And I think Covenant is maybe slightly more Mobius than Prometheus. Right. It's got a certain vibe to it that, yes, there's all the alien stuff in there and all that. But for me, there's a, a, it's a little bit more overt. Now, overt for me, because I'm into it. And I'm looking for oh, okay. it, and I can see it. It might not be obvious to others. So you're, you're quite tuned into that kind of aesthetic anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, now, another of our members, uh, Bonus Situation, has a, a pretty interesting question for you. It's not specifically related to Covenant, I think it's more of a general, general question um, about the film. He says, uh, looking back at Alien, the thing that makes the film so unique even today is largely due to the role and influence that Giga had as an artist shaping the tone of the film. How is today's landscape different for artists in comparison? Is there an appetite for artists to play a bigger and more influential role in giving a film a unique look and identity? 
Ooh, I didn't even think that was that was definitely not the norm back then either. It w- they were struggling way back then. They were struggling to come up with the design of the alien. I think Chris Foss had a crack at it. I think Ron Cobb had a crack at it. Uh, they all had a crack at it, and there was nothing. And I don't recall who it was, but someone threw down, you know, Giga's Necron. Okay, well, well there you go. So it was a Bannon threw that book down and said maybe this and he went yeah that's it so you've got this outside artist that's outside the industry it's outside that world who kind and, and it's so unique it's so, it's so awesome that the film wouldn't be as no it'd be nothing no i'm sorry we wouldn't be talking having this discussion right now this wouldn't you know this wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for gear and that's that work there's no way there's no way Every other possible design would have been just wrong. Mm. In hindsight, it just would have been wrong. So you've got this guy that's outside the industry who's so freaky, so out there, so individual, so unique. I think that's why he just could get away with whatever he wanted to get away with. And I think that's why he got so pissed off on set, didn't like what was going on. and He didn't know how the industry worked, did he? Exactly. Yeah, it was this total outsider to the whole thing, you know. And that gave him license to just do whatever he wanted. And I think the way film has changed, certainly the way visual effects have changed and uh, into the modern days, it's very corporatized. And when you get hired on as an artist to do certain things, it's because you have to fulfill a certain role, you get paid, see you later. There's no... Now they would have stolen Giga's work. Do you know what I mean? Mm. They, would, they wouldn't have gone and hired Giga. They would have just stolen his work and then paid him a licensing fee. That's that's how they'll do it. We want to use the design for that. Sure. Just pay me money. And and that would have been the end of it. I, I don't know any, any artist of, of any level anywhere that have that unique vision that would be brought onto a film that would utterly inform that look of that film the way Giga did. There's no way that's going to happen. It might happen one day in the future, but I, I can't see it happening. I think it's, like I said, if there's anyone that's got work that's unique, they would just say, hey, we want to borrow your designs. I mean, you know when Elysium, um, Longcamp's Elysium, yeah. I think, and I don't know the true veracity of this story, but my understanding is that the all the concept artists were looking at Sid Mead's work for that space station because he's done a ton of that sort of work. And they just said, well, why don't you just get Sid Mead in here? You know, we're still in his work. We don't feel good about that. We, he's our hero. You know, we grew up with stuff so they they got him in i think and he paints with gouache <laughs> airbrush and brush and gouache you know it's all traditional and it took forever whatever he was working on just took so long that was just like he was it was there to shut him up it was there so they didn't have to pay him a licensing fee or whatever what maybe they had to do that anyway but it was almost just a sort of a oh yeah well humor the old guy or humor the concept artist that didn't want to steal his stuff and they were forced to bring him in to, to make it look legit it's kind of sad, really, isn't it? It is. I mean, I'm like, so where's Ron? I'm sorry, but where's Ron Cobb in his film? Ron Cobb lives in fucking Balmain. He's like 10 minutes down the road. Where's Ron Cobb? Why is he not in his film? You know, I don't I get it. Maybe because he's he's not. He still works, I believe. I think he's a little ill at the minute. You just reminded me. I think he might kind of slip in and out of that. My teaching colleague and I, we've been trying to get him to do a, a workshop or at least talk about his life and talk about his work at, at, at our school. And getting hold of the guy is like damn near impossible. We thought it was because of ill health or something like that. We're like, okay, fair enough. That's cool. Give a talk at this high school one day and this dude comes over and he says, oh, by the way, you know, do you know Ron Cobb? Have you heard of I said, of course I've heard of Ron Cobb. So I don't know him, but I've heard of him. He says, oh, well, I live near him and I know him reasonably well. I said, oh, okay, so is, is he sick, you know? He's like, no, no, not that one, we're off. I went, really? He says, no, 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 he said, um, we were out like a couple of weeks back, you know, at some pub and he was up there dancing with girls and you know, whatnot. I went, really? <laughs> so, Fair enough. So maybe he's only sick after those nights out. <laughs> that, that's generally how it goes. 
But anyway, I mean, it's like, why wasn't Rod Conn brought onto Covenant? I don't know. Now, I mean, just because there's a there's a lot of nods to that. I mean, the, you know, the, the Ron Cobb stuff was floating around. I had the, his damn book in the studio as well. So it's like, why don't they bring these guys in? I think the studios just go, oh, it's too much like hard work. Are we going to pay them tons of money? Pay you guys. Pay the shit kickers, the young guys. Yeah. Oh, money, money, money. Yeah. So in answer to that question, I, I don't think, no, the artists don't have that kind of influence that Giga had. Not anymore. I don't think sort of rock star concept artists out there, unfortunately. I've got two more questions for you from uh, from our guys. And they're both from uh, Protozoid. You would like to know if working on Alien Covenant changed how you perceive Prometheus. It, was there ever any moment where Prometheus suddenly made more sense as a result of working on Covenant? Yes. I think this is my take on it. If you exclude, if you can't add all the bullshit parts of Prometheus um, and overlook the, some of the design flaws or whatever, if you just get past that, there, there's a, a flow through, there's a line through Prometheus. There's a character in Prometheus. You probably guess who I'm talking about. I guess David or New York, you know, sure at this point. David. He's the, he's that one unique aspect of the entire story. That line that flow through continues and i think it's almost like prometheus might be kind of pulled up and dragged with covenant in its wake right so it elevates it well i wouldn't say elevate i just think it'll drag it kind of it'll pull it with it but people might go back and look and go all right okay yeah yeah right i can see that you know that kind of works it, it might yeah elevate add more interest People, oh, right, yeah. Now, whether Ridley was thinking about those things during Prometheus, whether he was thinking right through, past, beyond Prometheus into Covenant at that time, I don't know. I have no idea. I think that's still quite a little hazy. I mean, when, when it was Alien, before it was Prometheus, they'd originally planned to do two films. Right. That States and Ridley had sort of, like, planned out. And then, obviously, it all, it all shifted. I think there was some talk of sequels, but I don't know if it was planned to the extent it was when Spates had been doing it as an Alien prequel. Yeah, I mean, look, he's got the benefit of hindsight. He's looked at Prometheus, had a, you know, got some idea of the feedback, looked at some of the ideas that he would have changed or, or, or done better, had time to think about, oh, okay, now where do I really take this? I think it'll pull it with it. I think it'll pull Prometheus with it. Maybe not a massive amount, but because that, that was my overriding thought, reading it and, and going through this, I thought, yeah, I think this might kind of pull it up. It'll drag it in its wake, if that makes any sense. Okay, so, so one last question then. From Protozoid again. And he would like to know if Covenant's design had a unifying theme, and if you could describe it in one word, what would it be? Oh, theme. Ooh, I could say something, but it might give it away. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I won't say anything. Fair enough. I can give you sort of my ideas of the sort of the design theme, if you like. There's a lot more Mobius involved. There's a kind of a graphic novel feel to the whole thing, for me anyway. I can see what Ridley's been looking at. A, a retrographic novel thing. Kind of. No, it's not overt. Like I said, he, he brings in all sorts of reference. So, you know, like the Bucklin, and you'll see the, you'll see the reference to the Bucklin stuff and the look and feel of that. But, but the theme, a, an overriding theme, uh, you'll see, yeah, it's a, it'll be a story point and I won't, I won't go there. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, right. So, is it likely we'll see you come back for Prometheus 3 or Covenant 2, whatever they're going to end up calling it? He wants, apparently he wants to make, well, before I left Fox, I asked Chris uh, somewhat early on, I said, oh, is this, you know, he said he wants to make the next two Alien films here as well at Fox Sydney. And I said, is that just bullshit? Was that just public relations bullshit? He said, oh, no, 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 he, he really wants to make them here. He's very happy. He was very happy here. And I said, why is that? I said, you know, he says, well, the value for money, for starters, probably because our government gives him a shitload of money, but he does get value for money. I said, okay, so what does that mean? I said, so if he's got plan A, he's got this vision 
of a set or, or a shot. It's his plan A. I said, does he have to fall back? How many times does he have to fall back onto plan B? And he said, never. Not here. It's Sydney. Not once. Everything he's got is his plan A. I said, okay. And he said, that never happens in LA and it never happens in London. He always has to fall back to some plan B at some point in those two cities or somewhere else. He said, here, he gets plan A and has got plan A every step of the way. So he, he's wrapped. He loves it. He's very happy. He loves the quality of the work. He's been blown away by what we've produced and for so little. So my understanding is that there will be two more and that he does want to shoot them here. He also wants to shoot another film, which has nothing to do with Alien whatsoever. And it's not a science fiction, some other thing. And he wants to do that at Fox as well. So it could be that I go from well, maybe onto that one. I know Chris is, I think Chris is looking into that one already. So, and then when the next Alien, I mean, God knows when this long camps, you know, <laughs> Alien 5 will, will ever happen. <laughs> I think Sigourney Weave will be dead. Or Ridley, for that matter. He's going to live forever. I tell you what, he doesn't stop. He, I mean, he's he's not a fast mover. He's old, so he, you know he's not he doesn't run around like crazy. But he he's got a lot of energy and he's bright. He's sharp, you know. But who knows? Short of getting run over by a forklift, <laughs> that didn't stop him. But it broke his hand. It broke his wrist. He didn't it didn't get, stop uh, him though. Oh no, not at all. He was back on back on set like you know later that day. So mm. another day. But yeah, absolutely. He's, he's full of energy. I think he'll just go until he drops dead. No doubt. Well, that's why he loves to do, isn't it? Yeah. So whether I'm on the next one or not, I think if, if Chris is on the next one, if they're doing it in Sydney, then they probably won't have any choice but to have us on because we're the only guys in Australia. <laughs> Chris Chris was great to work with. He was just awesome to work with. Uh, we all had a great relationship with him. He got – it didn't take long. He didn't know who we were. He didn't know that we were capable of anything in the beginning. But within a couple of weeks, he was like, oh, okay, I can just, just let you guys go, you know, to the point, you know, he'd come in. And, yeah, it was just – it's great. It's when you get that professional respect, you know what he's after, you give him your best, and he knows that he can just leave you with stuff and comes back and there it is, you know, and that you're going to not just – because I would think about stuff. I I would put shit in shots that shouldn't shouldn't have been there or I'd be given a brief from Chris or, and or Ridley about something and I'd take something out that they'd ask for, you know, because I'd think, I'd think it through. I go, but hang on, if this has happened and this has happened and there's all this time, you've got, the character's got time to think about X, Y, Z. So that wouldn't have happened. I'm sorry, but this would da, 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 you know. And then I'd paint that scene and I'd go, ooh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> and to have that trust, to have that trust from a designer like that to say, okay, it's cool, go for it, you know. Or he'd say, I don't know, I really might, you probably won't go for it. I like it, it's cool, but I'm just telling you, you know. But it was really great work with Chris, and I think Chris enjoyed working in Australia. So hopefully, hopefully then that we do get to see the next one through, It'd be great. And then maybe, maybe I might actually just get to meet him on a working, meet really on a working. <laughs> he might actually step foot in the art department more than once. That'd be fun. There, there was a pretty big lead-in time to this one, though. So you know, yeah, that's that's what I think. There was a, must have been prep work done either by himself through his own storyboarding, his own uh, research. Because we kind of came in and there was a lot of, a lot of the basic ideas were established. We, we didn't have to, there was no blue sky for us. It was just get in and just work with the materials. Refine what you've got, yeah. Yeah. Still fun. Still awesome. I mean, you walk around the sets, you see this stuff, you sit in the cockpits, you know, you, it's cool. It's very cool. Pinch, pinch yourself every day. Yeah. Well, that's that's everything from me. We've exhausted my twenty-something uh, questions. I hope they weren't too excessive. <laughs> oh no, yeah, no problem. So, well, well, before we do sort of sign off and hit end, is there anything you'd like to share that I just haven't really given you the opportunity to say? Only that I'm keeping a watchful eye over the forum. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wayne watches. Well, it's been fun watching you guys from, you know, like we were working, you know, we're painting this stuff and we, I think Dane was the first one to find it. Was it your forum or was it another one? There was another, what's the other forum? Is it sci-fi? Is that the one? Yeah, yeah, sci-fi. And they had some, like, kind of an expose and all the concept artists that were listed on IMDb at the time. And they kind of trying to work out who's doing what based on the artwork they'd already done, you know, that sort of thing. And then somewhere along the way, we found your forum. And so it's been fun to work on it and then read all the stuff you guys are, you know, thinking about and talking about. And I can say there's a lot of stuff you guys touch on that's really close. <laughs> And some of it that's like so far out, it's not funny. So it's quite fun. It'd be interesting for you guys, for all the guys that, were, that are close, you're going to go, yes, I knew it. I knew it. I knew that. <laughs> told you. I told you, Corporal. You know, mm. um, and those would be like, oh, God, it's nothing like what I thought at all. But it'd be, a, it's a mishmash. There's, you're, you're all pretty close on, you know, in some, in some way, but you're also quite far away in others. I don't think I'm ever going to get what I want from the whole Giga landscape. It's the only thing I want. You know, that'd be awesome. I think that's, that's some, well, Yes and no. See, that's where you go. Okay, do we go to the alien planet? Where does it? Where did it originate from? And if you shine a light on that, you lose the mystery. Now, there might be an aspect of that in this film. So, but I, I think it can be. Um, again, I think it's it's an, it's an aspect of found or you know reverse engineered technology that it still leaves that mystery open. Where did they come from? You know, really, where did that creature originate? Where does that come? It's so mysterious. It's so it truly is alien. And I think as long as we leave that, we can maybe go to the world, see some of that gigaresque tech, and then an entire gigaresque world would be phenomenal. I think you can you can kind of do it. I mean, in in the comics, I don't know how sort of versed in the expanded universe you are. Not, not that much. Okay. Well, in, in the in the comics, there's um, this whole thing about the aliens taking over worlds, entire worlds, and we call them like hive worlds. Okay. And you could do like I don't know a, a, an old hive, an ancient hive world where the aliens have sort of taken over and transformed it, and you've got all those food mounds that were in the original concept art for the pyramids. Yeah. So they use those a lot in the comics, it's like hives. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I think you can do it without losing mystery, without going too far to the, um, you know, the origins. Well, look, I, yeah, I think if you were getting into that realm of almost archaeological, where you learn some of it, but you still don't know the real story, I think if you keep that mystery, because once you know exactly where that creature came from, exactly how it came to be, then that's it, mystery over. Would, would you say there's a lot of mystery still left after after Covenant? You know, it's not all answered. It's not all laid on a plate for you. It's there are a ton of answers provided, but again, I think it's essential. It's about the tech that's found. It's about those guys what what they've done with it and what happens with that tech. It's just like us finding alien UFO tech somewhere, you know, and then what do we do with it? Right. You know, it's, it's it's that kind of idea. It's not there's not nothing really given away in terms of the origin of the alien itself. I think it's just it's all about it's the Prometheus. You know, those guys found it because the you, the Giga aesthetic is so different from the engineer cultural aesthetic. You go, well, how does that work? I mean, Chris, we had a discussions about this. Chris coming and go, what do you think about this? You know, what do you think the black goo is? And I said, I, I just think it's this shit they found. I said, I think it's some kind of bio thing. It's, it's got its own DNA. I said, like, say, human DNA, there's an inbuilt program that says when you grow into an organism, you're going to have two legs, two arms, a head, and a torso. You know what I mean? There's a certain bl- under, underlying blueprint to that DNA. And I think that's what the black goo is, or at least that alien stuff. There's a certain underlying... Architecture that no matter what that shit gets used for, 
there's an aesthetic that comes with it. And it's just that they don't understand it. So when they've used it, back engineered this stuff or found it or manipulating it as best they can, they get a ship that looks like the alien juggernaut. I don't know whether they actually know really what's going on. At least I'd like to think that we don't really go there. It's just, you know, that's my 12-year-old, 13-year-old self who saw Alien and went, I don't really want to know where the Alien came from. I love it. It's just so mysterious. Even then, you get the idea that it was a wreck ship. So they don't come from that, you know, planet anyway. So where did they come from? Ooh, you know, mysterious. It's fun. Don't ask the question though, so, yeah. I know, but that's the fun part of it. You can speculate. I love the speculation. You know, weird. But the minute you, you show that, you know, no, I am your father. It's, you can't, un- you can't undo that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, and then, and then what, what do you get after that? You get the Phantom Menace, right? So this is the logical conclusion of giving away shit that you really should have <laughs> kept secret. I think it kind of works Empire, but... Now that's got to be one of the biggest bombshell moments in cinematic history, that as well. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Man, I had so, I was in the cinema. I, I think I wag school that day, 1980. Went into the city, went into the cinema. I, my stomach was in knots in, in anticipation for that, for, for Empire. It was the best thing ever. Oh, truly was. And going back to my media studies teacher, his little story. He knew I was right into that stuff. He knew I was into Alien, Star Wars... And he comes into one of my classes, I think it was a, a maths class or an English class or something, and he says, I'm, um, <clears throat> this is 1983, right? so Return of the Jedi has not yet quite come out. And he says, I'm going to uh, interview Anthony Daniels today. And I went, you're what? <laughs> and I thought he was just bragging. I think he's just coming to gloat. <laughs> I said, you son of a bitch. And then he dropped the invite. And then he says, so I want 30 questions from you in the next 20 minutes because then we have to leave. <laughs> <laughs> I went, what? He says, yeah, you're giving the interview. Well, you're half giving the interview. I couldn't believe it. And I said, look, I, I have to go home and get my camera. I cannot do this without a camera. Someone has to take pictures. I've got to get a picture of this. Said, and he says, okay, well, then write those questions in 10 minutes, and then we'll just get, get the hell out of here. So he drives me all the way back to my home. I pick up my old 35mm Zenit camera, a roll of film. We go into this hotel in the city of Melbourne, upstairs, and there's Anthony Daniels. And I get to interview, you know, C3PO. And that was just like... Unbelievable. So I, we do the interview and I snap a few shots off. Thanks very much. I get home and I go to wind the film back into the canister. And I'm thinking, that's funny. I can't feel any tension. Why is that? Why is there no tension in that? The film never caught onto the spool in the first oh, place. Man. I never got the shots. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Nice. Oh, you, you better believe it. Back then, as a you know, I was 16 then. I know my age is. 1977 when Star Wars came out I was 10. <laughs> 1980 was 13 when Pike came out, and 16 when Return of the Pike came out. Alright, well, like I said, that's pretty much everything from me. Um, yeah. Thanks for taking the time to, to chat to us and answer the questions of um, a bunch of nerds on the internet. Hey man, I'm, I'm right there with you. Total nerd. You know, it's been a been a nerdgasm for me for you know almost a year, so I totally get it. That's why I'm <clears throat> I'm just as excited to see the trailer. You know, the latest Rogue One trailer came out. I'm like, yes, God, that looks good. God, I wish I could work on Star Wars. You know, so uh, I'm right there with you. I've got every original Marvel comic, Star Wars Marvel comic, 107 issues plus the adaptations and the annuals and stuff like that. So. I have no problem speaking nerd to nerd. You're very welcome. It's been fun watching you guys and reading all your theories and all that sort of stuff. So that's, that's been good. So keep it up. 
as long as we're entertaining you as well. Well, hopefully we've done our job and you'll be entertained when the film comes out, you know, and it's not, you don't look and go, oh, God, it's like Prometheus. So thank you, everybody, for uh, joining us today. Thanks for listening. Uh, as always, you know, be sure to keep an eye on the Facebook and Twitter pages, uh, ABP Galaxy on Twitter, Alien vs. Predator Galaxy on Facebook. And keep an eye out for the latest news and uh, all the awesome pictures that we're sharing every day. So this is uh, Corporal Hicks. And this is Hog, last surviving concept artist on the Covenant, signing off. <laughs> the, re- the real question is, what are we going to fucking do now, man? What are we going to do now? I'm unemployed. Game over, man. Game over, man. It's all fucking over.